Well, how many of you have ever gotten a present that you weren't too excited about? Let me see a show of hands. Like you open the present and you're like, oh yeah, you know, and you give the fake smile, you know, whatever. Some of you guys are lying. Oh my gosh. I know not that many people in here are like, oh, I just love every gift I've ever gotten. It's just the sweetest. I'm just happy someone would get me a gift. Listen, I know there has been some time in your life where you opened a gift and you were not excited about it. All right. But here's the thing. I got the answer for you this Christmas. Okay. In a COVID Christmas, you could wear a mask while you're opening presents. No one will know the difference and you can hide your face. All right. You can hide your frustration or annoyance or whatever it is at that present that you're opening. And no one will know the difference. Christmas in 2020 is going to be different. But one thing that never changes about Christmas, one thing that remains true about every single Christmas that shows us Christmas even screams to us that most everything about God is upside down to us. In fact, in 1978, there was a book written called The Upside Down Kingdom. And it was intended to convey the way the kingdom of God challenges the prevailing social orders, how the values of the kingdom stand in an inverse relationship to the values of the kingdom of this world. That is what is highly valued at the top of one kingdom ranks at the bottom of the other kingdom. Jesus said it like this. My kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. So my kingdom doesn't fight like the kingdoms of this world fight. My, my kingdom doesn't wage war like the kingdoms of this world wage war. My kingdom doesn't talk like, sound like, smell like, taste like the kingdoms of this world, Jesus would say. My kingdom is not of this world. To Jesus, there was the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Two kingdoms. Kingdom of God and the kingdom of of this world and every kingdom has a pattern, a product, a program. And so in the kingdom of God, it's blessed are the poor, the meek and those who mourn. And isn't that great news this year that we can be mourning. We could be poor. We could be broken. And God and the kingdom of God says you're blessed that God is near to the brokenhearted, that God is near to those who are poor, to those who are mourning. What great news is that this Christmas, maybe a Christmas unlike any Christmas you've ever had before, where that person is missing, where that income is missing. In the kingdom of God, blessed are the poor, the meek, and those who mourn. Not so in the kingdom of this world. It's blessed are the rich, the boastful, the arrogant, and those who are happy in the kingdom of God, it's the first will be last and the greatest will be a servant among you. The greatest will be the servant among you. But not so in the kingdom of this world. If you're not first, you're last in the kingdom of this world. In the kingdom of God, we love and pray for our enemies. Not so in the kingdom of this world. We gloat over and rejoice over our enemies and when they fall. In the kingdom of the world, it's about living for now, today, and doing what makes you happy and what feels good. Not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we live for eternity and for the spiritual things of heaven. In the kingdom of God, a poor widow is radically generous to the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, you lose your life for the sake of Jesus and for his gospel. In the kingdom of this world, though, we fight wars and wage wars and we seek to win elections. But in the kingdom of God, it's in weakness that we are made strong. 
It's in the kingdom of God where the worst of sinners are embraced by the son of God. And so the kingdom of God, the gospel of God, the word of God, Paul would say to the Corinthians is like foolishness to those who belong to the kingdom of this world. To those who are citizens of the kingdom of the world, they look at the word of God, the gospel of our God, the kingdom of God, and they say it is foolishness. And it's foolishness because Paul writes the Romans in Romans 1 that in our foolishness, we come up with bad ideas about who God is and what he's like. Paul says foolish ideas when we're left to ourselves. When we, when we, when we are left to ourselves to think about who God is and what he's like, we come up with foolish ideas. And so the kingdom of the world seems right side up to us and the kingdom of God seems upside down to us. But Christmas, as much as anything, reveals and shows that the kingdom of God is upside down. And so my prayer in this series, the upside down, is that the Holy Spirit will enable us to see things maybe just a little bit closer to the way God sees them. And so in week one, we said that salvation is upside down. We don't go up to God. We don't work to get to God. We don't do better or try harder our way into the kingdom of God. We don't have to go up to God. God has come down to us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So we don't say, we saw in Romans, we don't have to say in our hearts, how are we going to get up to God? Who's going to go up to heaven? Because God has come down, and that's Christmas. In week two, the upside down kingdom, we saw that success is upside down. We looked at Philippians chapter two, another Christmas passage, where Jesus gave up his divine privilege and his divine position and power and everything, and he came and he, he took on flesh and he became obedient to death on a cross, and he humbled himself as a servant. And so he saw that success to Jesus was giving up, laying himself down, was losing. Now make no mistake, Jesus won. He was exalted to the highest place and given the name that's above every name, but he won by losing. He won by giving up. He won by dying. And so we saw that success is upside down in the kingdom of God. Here's what I want you to see today. The upside down principle number three is that God's servants are upside down. Salvation's upside down, success is upside down, and the servants of God are upside down in this upside down kingdom. God doesn't use the people you think he would use. And the people you think he would use, a lot of times he doesn't use. And the people you would never guess that he would use are the people he likes to use. God's servants are upside down. So if you got your app, open it up now, the City Church Lubbock. If you don't, you can download it in your app store, the City Church Lubbock, and you can fill in the blanks with these words in all caps like servants. And you can stay engaged with what we're talking about today, fill in the blank. The verses are there, the points are there. You can take your own notes and even email yourself all of that when you are done. So let me show you more about what I'm talking about. Go to Matthew chapter one. If you got your Bible, Bible app on your phone, or opening our app where the scripture will be, uh, turn to Matthew chapter one. Now, as you're doing that, let me give you a side note, all right? Keep turning there, side note. In January, on January 10th, we're gonna start a new series called Kings and Kingdoms, and we're gonna go through the book of Daniel. We're gonna take about nine weeks. We're gonna go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel. And just FYI, we're gonna be doing a lot more of that. We're gonna do the book of Daniel, then we'll do a few other series, and then we're gonna do the book of Colossians that'll end out the spring and take us into summer. We're going to be doing a lot more of that. We're going to be going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I've told you many times to not ever take verses out of context, okay? We want to interpret the scripture, read the scripture, and understand the scripture in context, okay? That's the only way you can really understand it. And so we're going to do a better job of that by just actually going verse by verse. And uh, we're going to do that 
Another reason we're going to do that is because today it's alarming how little of the scripture Christians really know. People who claim to follow Jesus just do not know God's word. And so we're going to help you know it. We're going to teach it verse by verse and help you understand uh, the Bible. So that's another reason. Another reason is, is the scripture says, tells us that in the last days, people will gather around them teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And so it's real easy for teachers and preachers, even today, I'm sure you, you, you've seen it before, uh, to just say things that make people feel good and that seem inspiring. Uh, but that's not always what we find in the word of God. It is encouraging, it, it can be comforting, but it's also very convicting. And sometimes we people, we, we, we like to skip over the things that don't make us feel very good. But it's in teaching through the scripture verse by verse, you're gonna be forced to deal with some things We're going to talk about some things that maybe we wouldn't have talked about before. So in the last days, it says people will gather around them, people, teachers that just tell them what they want to hear. And so to combat that, we're just going to go even deeper and harder into God's word. So there's no chance that can possibly happen. I believe we are living in the last days and I believe people are gathering around them, teachers who make them feel good and tell them how to live their best life now. And uh, that's not good. It's, it's not good at all. And so we're going to go deeper into God's word. We're going to spend more time in it. And um, one of the things we're going to do with this series and all of these series that we'll begin to do is have uh, our city groups discuss what we're reading. And so I would invite you to get into a small group because these groups are going to become discussion groups about what we're talking about. They're going to read the chapter we read that week and talk about it. We're going to have some questions for you and some prayer points for you. And so if you're not in a city group, now's a great time to get in a group because these groups, uh, when we start the spring, are going to be walking through these chapters with us, the ones that we're preaching about. And then in our daily devotions on our app, that we will also be reading through the same verses uh, that we're preaching through on Sunday. So just FYI there, just a side note, uh, that's what we're going to be doing starting January 10th. January 3rd, uh, Brandon will be preaching a message on Elijah and prayer. It's going to be powerful. And then January 10th, uh, we'll pick up and start in the book of Daniel and look at the way Daniel lived backwards in the land of Babylon. He lived in the world, but he wasn't of the world. And uh, that's what we'll find in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, you'll find some of the most prophetic chapters in all of the scripture. They don't just talk about what has happened, but talk about what's going to happen. And I believe what's going to happen very, very soon. And so we need to be prepared for that. All right. Matthew chapter one, one through 17. Most of you, my guess is, and me, I do it too. We skip these verses. And I'm sure as you're looking at them right now, you're knowing why you simply skip them because it's the genealogy of Jesus. All right. And so my guess is, as you come to verses like this, you're like, oh, I'm going to skip this. or I'm going to skim through this real fast. Cause it's just a bunch of names and there's not a lot there, but we couldn't be more wrong. And I include myself in that when we skim through things like this, we couldn't be more wrong. We are missing out on so much when we skip through passages like this. This is Jesus's Maury Povich episode, all right? This is where you find out who his dad and his mom are, right? And the paternity test says, it's you, it's him, all right? And you find out who his great, 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 great grandmother was and his great, 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 great granddad was. And you're like, what? That's his great, 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 great granddad? Yes, that's who it is, all right? And so this is some of the juiciest and diciest stuff you will ever read, that the Son of God could come from some people like this, all right? So Matthew 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. Matthew writes this. This is the genealogy 
of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Stop right there. This is his thesis statement. Okay. And like a good preacher, he starts with it and he's going to finish with it. All right. And so he's saying, this is the, the big idea. All right. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David, the day that the King that was prophesied that would rule on David's throne forever. And so Matthew is saying, how, how do you get a King that rules forever? Unless you've got a King that lives forever. Right. And so Matthew is saying, Jesus is the king that was promised to David and the prophets prophesied about that would come in the line of David from the family of David that would reign on his throne forever. That was the promise that God gave to David. You will never cease to have a king reigning on your throne. There will be a king that comes from your line and when he becomes king, he will never cease to be king. And so that was the promise that was given to Abraham. It was the son of Abraham. The promise that was given to Abraham was that Abraham, if you remember in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and then again in 17, is told by God that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And then God promised Abraham that there would be a seed that would come from his family that would bless all the nations on earth. Literally all the families on earth. And so who is this seed that's going to bless all the families on earth. Who is this seed of David that's going to reign on his throne forever? This is the Messiah. This is who the prophet said, the Messiah that would come of David, of the line of Abraham, that would reign on David's throne, that would be the fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham. There's this Messiah who is coming. And Matthew is saying, guys, to his Jewish audience, both believing Jews and non-believing Jews, he's saying, this is him. This is the Messiah, the king that would come in the line of David, the seed that would be a blessing to all the families of, on earth through the line of Abraham. So this is his thesis. He's telling his Jewish believing and non-believing friends and audience that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he goes through the family tree. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob. And these words in red, these names in red, we're going to come back to later. I'll tell you a little bit more about him. But Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nishan, Nishan, the father of Salmon. This is a person, not a fish. Okay. Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of the King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Okay, now, so now we're getting to the kings of Judah. Okay, Rehoboam, we'll talk about it later. The kingdom is split. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Rehoboam is the king over Judah. And now we're following the family line of the kings of Judah. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, the Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Babylon came and sacked Judah and took them into exile. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, Abihud, the father of 
Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Amen. Now the thesis is repeated. Jesus is the Messiah. There were 14 generations at all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I know exactly what you're thinking right now. Like I, I can read your mind. I know what's on your mind. I know what you're thinking. Did he say all those names right? And listen, I, I'm wondering the same thing. I have no idea, all right? I know you were so impressed just now. You're thinking, man, he knew all those names. He knew how to say all of them. I don't, okay, I'm just like you. I, I, don't, I don't know how to pronounce, I know how to pronounce some of them, but I didn't take the time to, to study the, the, the Hebrew and then how you pronounce every one of those names. And I said it fast just to see how it would come off my tongue, right, okay? So I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know uh, the, how to pronounce all those names just like you. But these verses are dripping in Old Testament Jewish history. I mean, you've got a summary of the entire Old Testament right here in 17 verses. In fact, you've got a summary of the entire Old Testament in one verse. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mean, that is the entire Old Testament in one verse. And to a Jew who is hearing these names who are famous in their nation's history, these names are triggering emotions, some bad, some good. The, these names are, are triggering, triggering both pride and embarrassment all at the same time, just like your family does. Some of the names in your family triggers embarrassment. Some of the name in your family or in your family tree triggers pride. It has, there's, there's both emotions there, right? I mean, I bet right now, let me see a show of hands. How many of you know who the, the favorite is in your family? Like of your brothers and sisters, how many of you know who the favorite is? All right, you know who it is. Some of you are pointing. Some of you are holding each other's hands down. All right, some of you are saying, it's me, it's me. Okay, now opposite. How many of you know who the favorite isn't? Like you definitely know who the favorite is not in your family. Okay, okay. So you're, you're proving my point, all right? In, in, in this genealogy of Jesus, Jesus, these names are triggering thoughts and ideas and e emotions, both pride and embarrassment. And my guess is if you were to study your family tree, your genealogy, hundreds and hundreds of years back, you would be both embarrassed and proud. There would be stories of embarrassment and you would just rather skip over that, 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 that generation, right? And then there would be also stories of great pride to you and to your family. And the same thing is happening here to any Jew that Matthew is writing to. And he's writing to a Jewish audience, both believing and non-believing Jews. And they're hearing names that they're proud of. They're hearing names that they're embarrassed of. So, 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 so why is Matthew doing this? Why does Matthew take 17 verses at the beginning of his gospel to show us Jesus's family Tree. Why, why, why is he doing that? Well, have you ever heard the expression, uh, you lose the forest for the trees? And what, what, do we, what do we mean by that? Well, what we're saying is when you're in a forest and you're surrounded by trees that are surrounded by trees that are surrounded by trees, you can get lost. You, you don't know exactly how you got there. You, you, you don't know where you're going. You don't know where the forest starts and, and where it ends and where the sides are. You, you don't know any of that because you're in the middle of 
the force. But if you could zoom out, if you could get a bird's eye view, if you could lift up above the forest, you could see where it starts, where it ends. You could see how you got in there and you could see where you need to go to get out. And if you could see the forest for the trees, if you could get that bird's eye view, if you could raise up and get that perspective, you would go, oh, I see it now. I see, I couldn't see it before when I was in the middle of the trees. I couldn't see the forest for the trees. But if you could get that perspective, you go, oh, I see it. I see the forest. I see what's happening here. And no doubt, to many of Matthew's Jewish readers, they would read this and they would go, oh, I see it now. I didn't see it before, but I see it now. It's plain, it's clear. I I couldn't see it before, but I see it now. And so at least four reasons I think Matthew takes these first 17 verses to explain Jesus's genealogy, his family tree. Number one, I think Matthew is saying that Jesus is king forever. He's the forever king that was promised to David that would reign on his throne forever. He is the king forever. In one verse, we have an entire summary of all the Old Testament, of all the prophecy that was in the Old Testament, that Jesus, the Messiah, came from David, who came from Abraham. Summary of this entire passage is that Jesus is the king forever. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one that was prophesied. He was the son of man that was prophesied to come. He's the son of God that was prophesied who would come. You see, to his believing Jewish audience, they are facing persecution for their faith in this Messiah. They're having to sacrifice. They're losing land. They're losing homes. They're they're losing loved ones that are being persecuted and tortured and martyred for their faith in Christ. And you know, when times are tough, sometimes we lose faith, don't we? We struggle, we we lose faith. And, And I think Matthew is reminding his Jewish audience here who is struggling, who's losing heart because of the persecution that they're facing, because of the sacrifice they're facing. And he's saying, listen, guys, Jesus, our King forever, he is worth it. He's worth the sacrifice. He's worth the persecution. Yes, he's worth even your life itself. Jesus is our king. He's the one we've been waiting for. And so he is worth it. He's worth your devotion. He's worth your worship. He's worth your time and money and energy. He's worth it all. He is worth it. He is our king forever. And then to his non-believing Jewish audience, who is resisting placing their faith in Jesus because of the persecution, because of the sacrifice that's going to come with it. He's telling them, Jesus is worth it. Don't miss it. Don't miss out. This life is about Jesus. It's all about him. And and so don't miss it. He's telling his unbelieving, his non-believing Jewish audience. He's saying, Jesus is the king forever. Place your faith in him. It's worth it. Secondly, I think Matthew is saying that Jesus is the center of history. 
not only our history as a Jew, Jewish history, I'm not speaking to myself, I'm talking like if it was, I was Matthew, he's saying, listen, listen, Jesus is the center of our Jewish history. This is what it's all been about. This is what all the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms have been telling us. It's all about him. He's the center of Jewish history. He's the center of history itself. Everything from Genesis chapter one has been leading to this moment. And I think Matthew is saying Jesus is the center of history. Everything has been leading to this point. Scripture tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus, like at the right moment, at the perfect time, God sent his son, Jesus. God was moving and working and organizing everything for this moment. He's the center of history. And he's the center of history into the future. Because now we're awaiting the return of Jesus. When he won't come as a suffering servant, he'll come as king of kings, lord of lords, on a white horse, ready for battle. And so all of history is pointing to now the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. He came the first time as the suffering servant to die in our place for our sin, but he's coming the second time as Lord. And so all of history is pointing to Jesus. And not only that, all the scripture is pointing to Jesus. Jesus told the religious leaders of the day that the Pharisees, he said, listen, you're, you're reading these, the, the, this old, the old Testament. He said, you're reading this old covenant because you think by reading it and doing it, you're going to have life. But he said, what you don't understand, what you don't realize is that was all about me. It's all pointing to me. All of the law, the prophets and the Psalms, he told the Pharisees, it was all about me. All of the scriptures about me. In fact, when Jesus was on the, the, the road with those two men after he rose from the grave and they didn't recognize him yet and he's talking with them and, and, and they don't know who he is, Jesus starts talking with them and it says he began to explain to these two men all that was written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And so Jesus is saying, all of it was about me. All of the scripture points to me and all of the scripture in the New Testament Points to Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. It's all about Jesus. And if it's all about Jesus, you know who it's not about? It's not about you. And it's not about me. And it's not about America. I know that's going to burst some bubbles, but the scripture is not about America. America is God's is not God's saving hope for the salvation of the world. It, it's not. Jesus is God's plan to save the world. And he uses broken people and broken nations and broken churches. But the scripture is not about America. It's not about you. It's not about me. Sometimes we begin to think that we are the center of God's universe or that mankind is the center of God's universe. Sometimes in this country, we have been led to believe that America is the center of God's universe. It is not. God is the center of his own universe. It's all about him. The scripture is all about Jesus. Even in the end, all creation is worshiping Jesus. We're not worshiping a country. We're not worshiping a leader. We're not worshiping a person. We're worshiping Jesus. And that's the end. God is about saving people and rescuing people from their sin, giving them new life in Christ that they might become worshipers. God is about God. Jesus is the center of history. 
Third, and this is our main point today, I think Matthew is writing this telling us that Jesus came from bad people. And that's just the simplest way of saying it. Jesus came from very bad people. I mean, when you read this genealogy, when you read the, the family line of Jesus, this is a messed up family tree full of liars, crooks, adulterers, murderers, prostitutes, and kings that led Israel into idolatry and eventually exile. These are mostly evil, wicked, bad people. And Jesus came from these bad people. I mean, it's, it's, it's astounding. Abraham was a liar. At the end of Abraham's life, we learned that Abraham had many concubines. Yet to Abraham and Sarah was born a miracle baby that they did not expect and they didn't believe was possible. Isaac, also a liar. Yet to him and his wife was born a miracle baby that they were shocked to find out that they were having. Jacob, the son of Isaac, was deceitful. He was a liar. He was unethical. Tamar, the first woman mentioned now in the genealogy of Jesus, and this is very important because in this day in ancient history and antiquity, you would never mention women in a genealogy like this. And so I think just a side note, Matthew is saying, hey, in the kingdom of God, it's upside down. It, it's, it, it, it switches everything that you find to be true in the kingdom of this world. And in this day, in the kingdom of the world, women were seen as just servants and playthings for men. And Matthew is saying, that's not, not so in the kingdom of God. Uh, we're going to list them in the genealogy of the son of God. And so I think Matthew is intentionally listing some women here saying that men and women are of equal value and worth in the eyes of God. But Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, one of Joseph's brothers. You might remember the story of, of Joseph better. But Judah has a daughter-in-law named Tamar. Judah is Tamar's father-in-law and Tamar knowingly tricks Judah into having sex with him and commits incest. Rahab is a foreigner. She's not a Jew. She's a prostitute in Jericho. But when she hears the armies of God are coming and advancing against Jericho, by faith, she welcomes the Israelite spies into Jericho and is saved. Ruth, the third woman mentioned, is a Moabite. She's a foreigner as well. She is not a Jew. And Moabites were known, they were famous for their sexually immoral lifestyle. She slept at the foot of Boaz's bed and she eventually married Boaz. King David, possibly the most famous person in all of Jewish history, was an adulterer and a murderer. Bathsheba, you're like, wait a second, I didn't read Bathsheba. I didn't see that name in there. Well, Matthew calls her Uriah's wife. Maybe he, even Matthew didn't want to mention her name because of the embarrassment that was tied to King David, the most famous person in all of Jewish history, possibly maybe besides Father Abraham. Bathsheba, the one who had sex with David outside of marriage, their son was King Solomon. And King Solomon, while he was known to be the wisest man ever lived, learned a lot of that wisdom through trial and error. He learned by falling on his face. Solomon was famous for the number of concubines that he had in his court. Their son, King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, in his arrogance, in his pride, 
He divided the kingdom of Israel into two. Half the nation revolted against him under the leadership of Jeroboam, who would become king of Israel. Rehoboam would become king of Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And most of the kings of Judah that we just read in verses 1 through 17 came from, that came from Rehoboam led Judah into idolatry. Almost all of them did. Even the ones that would repent and, and you would see the, the nation of Israel revive in their, their love and worship for God, they wouldn't last very long and they would fall right back into idolatry. But most of the kings of Judah led Judah into idolatry. The same thing would happen to Israel in the north. Jeroboam and the kings who came from Jeroboam's line would lead Israel into idolatry. And so the prophets of God would warn the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, to repent and worship the one true God. And when ultimately they didn't, or when ultimately it didn't last, God would use Assyria to wipe out Israel, Babylon to wipe out Judah, and take Judah into exile. And the prophets in exile would prophesy that a Messiah, this king that was promised to David, would come and rescue them. And there you have most of the Old Testament. You see, this is Jesus's Maury Povich episode. These people are in Jesus's family tree and it's crazy. It's wild. And it makes you see this. Jesus came not because of Israel's righteousness, but in spite of their rebellion. Jesus didn't come from these people because they earned it or they deserved it. It was the opposite. He didn't come from this family tree. He didn't choose Abraham and he didn't turn Abraham into a family and a family into a nation because they deserved it, because they were righteous. No, it was the opposite. God chose them in spite of their rebellion. God came from this family line and from this nation in spite of their rebellion. And this is grace. It's the definition of grace. Is that God loves us and sent his son Jesus to die for us, not because of our own righteousness, not because we had earned it or done anything to deserve it, but actually in spite of our rebellion. And listen, the same thing was true for Mary. When the angel shows up and talks with Mary and says, Mary, you found favor in the eyes of God. It's the Greek word for grace. And the angel tells Mary, Mary, you didn't earn this. You don't deserve this but God is having grace on you. And by his grace, he is choosing you. And by his grace, he is saving you. And by his grace, you're gonna be the, the mother of Jesus, not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, because you are wicked just like the rest of us, but by God's grace, he chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Not because of her righteousness, but in spite of her rebellion. You see, God used these names that led to Jesus for his glory. Jesus came from bad people. And then fourth and last, finally, Jesus came for bad people. He came from bad people and he came for bad people. The irony in all of this is that Matthew is the one that's writing this, considered to be one of the worst of sinners. In fact, he was thought to be a famous sinner as a tax collector. You might remember <coughs> Matthew's collecting taxes. Jesus walks up and says, follow him. Matthew leaves his life of sin. He follows Jesus. They're at Matthew's house. He's with his other tax collector and sinner friends. And what do the Pharisees come up saying? Jesus, why are you eating with these famous sinners? 
Why are you eating with this famous sinner, Matthew, and his tax collector buddies? You see, the Jews thought tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were fellow Jews that were taking money for them, collecting taxes, and then giving it to their Roman overlords. And not only that, they would take more than they had to take so they could pocket the difference. So so the Jews saw tax collectors as traitors and the worst of sinners. And Jesus walks right up to Matthew at his tax collector's booth in the middle of his sin and says, Matthew, follow me. Don't, you don't have to clean yourself up. You're not, you're not going to change your, uh, your behavior before you're going to follow me. You may not even believe everything accurately yet and you, and, and you don't, but you're going to follow me and I'm going to clean your life up and I'm going to help you believe the right things. Follow me. And so Matthew follows Jesus. And Matthew writes this gospel as one of the worst of sinners. Jesus came for bad people. Jesus came for Peter. He invited Peter to follow him, knowing that Peter would deny him three times, knowing that Peter would get it totally wrong when Jesus was saying, hey, I'm going to the cross. And Peter's like, no, you're not. That's never going to happen. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I mean, can you imagine a worse rebuke? The son of God saying to you, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus says this, don't miss this to Peter. You don't have the things of God in mind. You've got the things of men on your mind. So, so here's what Jesus is saying. You don't have the kingdom of God, the upside down kingdom of God on your mind. You're, you're thinking like the kingdom of this world right now. And that's satanic. When we think the way the kingdom of this world works, when that's right side up to us, it's satanic. Jesus says, no, 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 Peter. In the upside down kingdom, I'm going to go and die in your place for your sin. That's the way the kingdom of God works. It's upside down. Jesus came for bad people like Paul. Paul was a church persecutor, but he sees the risen Jesus. Paul, Jesus calls him to, to follow him, to go and to become a preacher and a church planter for him. And Paul goes from being a persecutor into a preacher. And Paul would confess that he was the worst of sinners, but God chose him and appointed him to be an apostle and a preacher. The worst of sinners becoming the best of preachers. You see, God saves by his sovereign grace. God doesn't save and use people because of their righteousness. He saves and uses people uses people in spite of their rebellion. That's the grace of God. We have a sovereign God who chooses to work through sinful men and women. And so God uses the names leading to Jesus for his glory, but he also uses the name coming from Jesus for his glory. You see, Jesus came from bad people and came for bad people. He came from bad people for bad people. Our big idea today is this. God uses bad people for his glory. And, and that's the good news of great joy that's for all people. Is that God uses bad people for his glory because that's the only kind of people there are. The kingdom of this world will tell you that you're good enough, that you're worthy enough. And if you do better and try harder, you will find yourself into the afterlife that you so desire. But if you do better, try harder, follow this path, you can do it. You're good enough. You're worthy of God's love. That's the kingdom of this world talking. The kingdom of God says this. No, there's no one good. No, not one. 
And, and, and your righteousness, the things that you do for God that you think are, 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 so, are so great, they're like filthy rags to a holy and righteous, eternally righteous and holy God. They're like filthy rags. And so there's no one good, no, not one. And not only that, the scripture says that there's a fine to be paid for sin. When you break God's law, you pay God's fine. And God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in a place called hell. But the great news in the upside down kingdom is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, rebelling against God, Jesus died for us in our place for our sin, taking the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself. He died in our place for our sin. And that's the great news of the upside down kingdom of God. The upside down gospel is that a perfect and holy and spotless savior, the son of God died in our place for our sin. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin at the cross, conquering death at the resurrection. And Romans 10, nine says this, if you believe in your heart, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. When you turn from your sin and you place your faith in Jesus and you believe that God rose Jesus from the grave, you will be saved. And that's the good news of great joy for all people that today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. A savior has been born to save us and to rescue us from our sin. That's the upside down gospel. It's the upside down kingdom of God. And so if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, my challenge for you, or if you're watching online, is to give your life to Jesus today. Jump on our app, the City Church Lubbock, fill out our connect form, check that box that says you're giving your life to Jesus. And just let us know about the decision so we can follow up with you, so we can celebrate that new decision with you. But my prayer for you this Christmas is that you will see that Christmas is showing, even screaming to you, that God's servants are upside down. God's servants are upside down. It's an upside down kingdom where God uses the weak to show his strength, where he uses messed up people to preach a message, where he gets glory from bad people and bad events, where he turns a persecutor into a preacher, where he gets beauty from ashes, where he turns pain into power, brokenness into beautiful, and he uses your past for his plan and he uses your scars for his story. And that's my story too. Like Paul, I would say, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the chief one among us. You're like, Clayton, you're, you're a pastor. You're not supposed to say that. Well, you just, you don't know my wicked and evil heart. You, you don't know my sexually immoral past. You don't know all the mistakes I've made. And in light of a holy God, the more I get to know him and the more I see his holiness, I realize just like Paul, I am the chief. I am the worst of sinners. And if you have experienced the holiness of God and the grace of God, chances are you're going to say, no, Clayton, you don't understand. I'm the worst. I'm the chief sinner in the room. And then the next person is going to come up to you and say, no, no, you don't understand. I, I'm the chief sinner in the room. I'm the worst. But I thank God that by his grace, he chose me 
He's gifted me. He's put me in this position. He's using me just like the same way he wants to use you. He's gifted you and he wants to use you by his grace, not because of your own righteousness, but because and in spite of your rebellion. So my challenge for you, Christian, is to serve God. Serve God. There's no excuse. The good news of great joys for all people, doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, or what you've done, you've got no excuse. God uses bad people for his glory. So Christian, learn your spiritual gift and use it for the glory of God and for the good of the church. Pray for someone this week. No, don't just tell someone you're going to pray for them. Put a hand on their shoulder and pray out loud for them right there in that moment. Share your story with someone about how God rescued you from your sin. Be a bringer. Invite people to church with you. I challenged my son a month ago to invite some friends to their middle school gathering they have on Wednesday nights. And, and he, he invited about 40 friends and has seen over 20 of them come in about two weeks. Be a bringer, invite people to church, serve God. And that's the upside down kingdom. Salvation's upside down, success is upside down, God's servants are upside down. What great news of great joy for all people. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the upside down kingdom of God where salvation and success and your servants are all upside down. God, would you help us to begin to see things like you see them through the power of the Holy Spirit, to value the things that you value, to see the things that, that you see. God, we thank you for the upside down kingdom of God. God, I thank you for saving bad people like me and using bad people like me for your glory. And so God, this Christmas, would you remind us, would you show us, would you allow us to see the forest for the trees and maybe today say, oh, I never saw it before, but I see it now. Jesus is my king forever. It's all about him. In Jesus' name, amen.